Hello, and welcome to today's edition of uh, Quick Takes, brought to you by R9 Media Radio, where we uh, ask a specific question and get an answer from a recognized expert in the field. Uh, today's question has to do with uh, game fixing, scripting of games, etc. in professional sports, and our guest expert today is author, writer, and journalist Brian Tui. Brian is recognized by the United States Supreme Court as a scholarly authority on game fixing in professional sports. He's not in any way beholden to the corporate sports media world. He's the author of the highly controversial books, The Fix is In, the showbiz manipulations of the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, and NASCAR. Also, larceny games, sports gambling, game fixing, and also the FBI, a season in the abyss, sports gambling versus the NFL's integrity. And his most recent work is The Fix is Still in More Corruption and Conspiracies, professional sports leagues don't want you to know about. Brian is also an in-demand radio guest, having appeared on over 200 programs and podcasts across the United States and Canada, including the nationally syndicated programs, The Dan Patrick Show, Coast to Coast AM, Fox Sports' Chris Myers interviews, JT The Brick, The Brian Kenny Show, on NBC Sports Radio, The Steve Saban Show, and The Alex Jones Show. Uh, Infowars and now R9 Media Radio. His other sports related writing can be found in Sports Illustrated, Vice Sports, and Sports on Earth, as well as his own popular website, which I highly recommend, thefixisin.net. So, with that, let's get to the question. Maybe, or I have at least thought, a lot of professional sports is uh, scripted to a certain degree. So I'm going to go with the assumption that that is in fact the case. And that they are scripted to some degree, the question then becomes, at least for me, has that always been the case? Or is it a more recent phenomenon driven by the vast sums of money involved? The interesting thing to me about all of it is that it's not an original idea of my own. I'm not the first person who's come out and said, look, I think professional sports may be scripted or manipulated for television purposes. Um, it's actually an idea that dates back, at least that I can tell, to the 1960s. Mm. And I think the first one that really came to note for me was the guy by the name of Richard Hemble, who uh, was working for the Rand Corporation. Oh, places. right. And in the like, late 1960s, I think it's either 69 or maybe 1970, he published a paper through the Rand Corporation that asked the question, had the World Series been fixed? And his question was basically asking, had the World Series gone to Game 7 more often than it should have? Hmm. Throughout history, going back to 1903 through 1968, I think is when he right. did his research. Right. And he did it all from a mathematics perspective. And it's mathematics that are way above my head. <laughs> I probably since I was in high school. Right. But his conclusion was that by the late 1960s, yes, the World Series had reached Game 7 more than it statistically should have. Hmm. And his basic notion was, look, 
you know, if it goes to game seven, that means more ticket sales, more parking commissions, you know, more hot dogs sold, more t-shirts sold, more attention, more television, more radio, more everything. Mm-hmm. It was all good for baseball. And so without really saying that baseball was intentionally doing this, he was basically saying baseball was doing this. Right, 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 right. The World Series go to game seven more often than the should have. And that's going back to 1968. Right. For myself. I took from 1949, which is one of the first World Series was broadcast on television, mm. 1989, so mm. 40 years, mm. and I found, without being a statistician, that 20 of those 40 World Series went to Game 7. Mm. And I think only a handful, maybe like five or six, I don't remember off the top of my head, but just a few were for Game 2. Right. So way more often than normal, World Series was going to Game 7 in that time span, and then around 1989 is when the playoffs expanded. Hmm. So there became more postseason games in Major League Baseball, and it continues to expand to this day. And so the revenue that was being made in those postseason games, both television and ticket sales and you know concessions and that sort of thing, increased in the early 1990s because there was more games to be had, so the World Series didn't go to Game 7 as more often. Right. But I find it very coincidental without being really a coincidence when you consider Major League Baseball as a big business. Right. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, and you go back to that time frame, and it's like, well, what would make the most money for this business? Well, back in the 1950s, 60s, early 70s, it was probably getting Game 7 World Series, and then moving forward, it became more about the general whole postseason picture, I guess. I see, I see, I see. Interesting. But I also think, too, for like the NFL, I think one of the most interesting things is Super Bowl three, which was 1969. Mm-hmm. Because I think that game was fixed by the league itself, again, for business purposes. Mm-hmm. Because a lot, of, a lot of fans, especially younger fans, they don't understand that back in the 1960s, there was two competitive football leagues. There was the National Football League, the NFL, which you know today. Right. And then the rival, AFL, right. which became essentially the AFC conference in modern-day National Football League. But the AFL was really funded and controlled by NBC, ah. rival to CBS for the NFL. And because the AFL started stealing draft picks, started stealing players for the NFL, mm-hmm. a major rivalry you know, existed between those two leagues, and some of the owners got together and decided we should merge these leagues into one entity, which became the modern National Football League. Right. Back in the 1960s, a lot of NFL fans didn't take the AFL seriously because it was kind of a different brand of football. Right. More, actually, what we see today was more high flying. There was more scoring, there was more passing, there was a more wide open game than the traditional NFL game. And so when the merger started to really take shape, is when the Super Bowl was born. Ah, I see. Super Bowls, which were won by the Green Bay Packers, which were the NFL powerhouse at the time, really kind of cemented the line of NFL fans that the NFL is a better brand of football than the AFL, and when the AFL joins the NFL, this whole league's going to get watered down and it's going to fall apart. Right. But then, came Super Bowl three in the Jets and Joe Namath. Right. And so here you had this game that was really, on paper, completely lopsided matchup where the Colts were something like a 16 or 17 point Right, right. Among sports books. The Colts were literally, probably the 1968 Colts were probably one of the greatest NFL teams in history. Hmm. They had the point differential that was something like 18 points per game, which I don't think was broken. That record wasn't broken until the Patriots did it just a few years ago, within the past, like, five or six years ago with Tom Brady. Hmm. 
but they were juggernauts. Their quarterback on the bench was John United. Their starting quarterback was Earl Morrow. Yes. And Earl Morrow became the NFL uh, MVP that year because he played so well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, so they were the best team in the NFL, and they were matched up against the Jets, who were the third seed team in the AFL, but they were led by, you know, Joe Namath. Right. They know Joe Namath basically because of Super Bowl three. Right. And so here came the matchup. Joe Namath guarantees the famous win. And sure enough, the Jets go out there and somehow beat the Colts right. in the Super Bowl. Now, there's one of the biggest upsets probably in football history up to that point. Right. But what it mattered was to the league, because now you had a rival a- AFL team led by the superstar that beat the, the, probably one of the greatest teams in NFL history. Right. And for the fans, that was a big deal. Mm. Because now they became accepting of the AFL. Now they became accepting the merger. And as a former NFL player, Bernie Parrish, who actually was a big, uh, I don't know if he was really president, but he was one of the higher ranking members of the uh, NFL Players Association Union. Right. Um, he wrote in a book in the early 1970s that he thought that game, Super Bowl III, was fixed, basically like I do, for business purposes. Ah. None of that game made sense, but it made sense on paper from a business perspective because now it solidified the merger. It, it solidified it in the NFL fans' mind. Okay. And he said it meant billions of dollars to all the owners. Right, right. That one outcome. Right. And so I think the NFL learned back then, like, we can manipulate games. We can fix our own games. We can do it legally, which is the scary part. Right. There is no law that prevents the NFL from fixing its own game. Right. And people will accept it. Mm. Even if it's an absurd outcome, which technically the game was an absurd outcome in the play for a moral the coaching of Don Shula, who was the Colts head coach at the time, was terrible. Hmm. And really, the Jets didn't do anything over and above to win that game. But right. They still won it. I think it was 16 to 7. Yes. Before. Yes. You know, it meant a lot of money to a lot of people. Hmm. So I think you can go back to the 1960s and see that way back then, even though it seems like forever ago for a lot of sports fans, you know, but 60 years ago, these leagues understood look, we're business, our business is entertainment. And we could actually manipulate these things to make these things more entertaining to these people to watch more, which will mean more revenue for us. Because let's be honest, they don't play these games for fun. Right, 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 right. And so you have, you know, all the television networks, especially today now, who invest billions of dollars into professional sports, whether it's the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, NHL, NASCAR, what have you. Right. They are literally funding professional sports today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the NFL wouldn't exist as it does now without the, what is it, like $10 billion they get right. from the television network. Something like that, yes. It's in, they wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. They couldn't pay the salaries that they pay without television. So television needs something in return. Mm-hmm. And while, you know, sports is one thing you almost have to watch live on television these days. Right. All the other television shows that you can DVR or, you know, watch at Hulu or Netflix or whatever. Right. Sports you have to watch live. Right. But at the same time, you know, football is football. Every football game is really kind of the same. Every baseball game is kind of the same. Right. So you have to create an atmosphere around it, a story around it, to get people to tune in every week. Right. And so I think when you have, you know, the networks so invested in these leagues, spending billions of dollars, they're working in cahoots, essentially, with the leagues to make sure they get the most bang for their bucks. Ah. At the same time, you have the ESPNs of the world, who should be kind of like a watchdog right. to investigate reporting into sports right. and, you know, try to uncover some of the dirt going on. Well, when they're giving, you know, ESPN's giving the NFL, what, $1.5 billion a year for Monday Night Football, 
why would they shoot themselves in the foot and investigate any corruption going on within these leaks? Because it's just going to hurt their own bottom line. They stop doing investigative reporting in any way, shape, or form into the professional sports world because all the media companies are invested in it. I'd like to just jump in with one question, and it's a question that I posed uh, to you on Twitter, um, and you're busy, you didn't get to answer it. But I wanted to ask you about if this, or I remember reading when I was young, uh, you know, how quarterbacks used to call their own plays. And I remember reading that the last quarterback who had the, or I should say had the right, if you will, to call his own plays was Jim Kelly. And I remember Jim Kelly in an article that I read saying he rarely ever did it. I remember recently uh, Aaron Rodgers, uh, and you maybe remember this, where he was asked, and he would he said, you know, I wouldn't want the responsibility. So my question is, did was it ever the case that quarterbacks called their own plays? And if so, did that kind of go away with making sure that hey, we're not putting the hands of the game, and we're not putting the outcome of the game literally in the quarterback's hands? Well, I don't back in the I don't know in the case, but there definitely was a time when the quarterbacks didn't call their own plays. Right. I mean, I know like back in the sixties and seventies that occurred when the changeover occurred when coaches decided, well, the quarterbacks aren't smart enough or right. into the game enough to decide. Right, right. I don't know when that transition took place. I really don't. Right. But it is interesting that, you know, at one point in time, you had somebody who literally controlled the offense and the quarterback and felt what was going on within the huddle, within the players, probably better than the offensive coordinator sure. today because sure. they're so tuned in. Right. And how they just kind of let loose and become almost like robots. Right. Okay, the coach told me to run play X. We're going to run play X. Right. Oh, it looks like they're blitzing there, which might destroy play X, but hey, that's what they told me. <laughs> right. And they do it. I, I, you know, it does seem kind of counterintuitive in many ways. I mean, I know they can audible and do things with the line and change things, but right. it is interesting that they've kind of taken that really out of the player's hands completely and put it into completely into the coaching realm where, again, it doesn't mean the coach is completely on the level. Right, right. Coach can't, you know, intentionally sabotage the game with the play call. I mean, you go back just a few years ago with the um, the Raiders-Tampa Bay Buccaneers Super Bowl, and after the game, you know, you had both Jerry Rice and Tim Brown, two Hall of Fame wide receivers, come out and say their head coach, Bill Callahan, sabotaged this guy. Right, right. I read about that, yes. We blew it up from the Raiders so the Buccaneers would win. Yes, yes. And it's, you know, something that's never been fully investigated or really kind of talked about. It was a news story and then kind of disappeared, but... Right. I mean, it has a lot of ramifications if you think about it in modern-day football. I mean, not only with the gambling aspect of it, but just the legitimacy of the game. Absolutely. Just before the Super Bowl, the biggest game in the NFL every year can totally destroy his team's game plan on purpose. Right. And there's no repercussion besides the loss out of the field. Well, I, I wanted to, uh, that is, uh, thank you very much. I mean, it, it clarifies the issue. I wanted to just ask you, there was an interview I saw with, I'm sure you remember, Ed Tall jones um, where he uh, used to be with the Cowboys, and he talked about Tom Landry. And he said that, um, Tam, Tom Landry, I wanted to just get your thoughts on what he said. Tom Landry, he said, was the last real a coach who actually did some coaching. He said, nowadays, uh, the coaches are more uh, PR people for the team, and it's the coordinators who actually do the uh, work with regard to offense and defense. What What are your thoughts on that? Well, without being, you know, directly involved in a team, it's hard to say. Right. It would make more sense. Right. Because, like you say, you usually see 
after the game, they interview the head coach. They don't interview the coordinator. Right, right, right. Technically, are calling the plays. And yes, you know, a lot of times too, you know, the coaches walking out, the head coach is walking off his play sheet, but he's not the one necessarily calling the plays. It's someone else. Or the ball, but you know, nowadays they have not just an offensive coordinator, but you have a quarterback coach, you have a line, you know, right. 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 It's amazing that you in a game that's really you know with the NFL, it's either run or a pass. Right. Not that complicated. <laughs> to have this army of coaches to decide what to do, how to do it, when to do it. Right. And more often than not, sitting at home, you're like, how stupid are these? <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, this idea of these games being potentially scripted or manipulated or right. fixed for television purposes makes sense to a lot of people because suppose you get all this brain power on the sidelines of an NFL game and they do something that's completely 100% stupid that wants to the game and you wonder, could that many people make that much of a mistake? Right. It means more for television, and it means more to believe that Team X advances while Team Y loses. Exactly. I, I, I did want to ask, and this is also something I had uh, posed to you on Twitter. Um, you probably remember, uh, at least I do anyway, um, just as a nominal observer, there used to be a lot of talk, and maybe this was about 20 years ago, and it, it, it brought to mind what you recently what you just said. Remember the league talked quite a bit about parity. Uh, you remember they didn't. They wanted to get to a point where no team was so bad and no team was so good. And I thought, uh, in light of your work, um, do you think that whole notion of getting to parity, where uh, you don't have these lopsided uh, seasons for some for most teams, and it seems like well, every team can potentially have a chance. I'm sure you remember those talks where the league wanted to get to some sort of level. <laughs> Well, that goes back really to the 1960s and Pete Rozelle. He's the one who came up with that. Ah, I see. I see. Okay. So, I mean, it's been around forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, on one hand, it is smart because, you know, if you have all the teams that are equal, then you have this mentality of, well, on any given Sunday, team A can right. be Right. You know, it doesn't matter what the sports book says or what the point spread is. Right. You know, on the field, if everybody's kind of even and equal, everybody has a chance each week. But I also think a genius idea to hide behind. Right, right. You are manipulating games for 15 games, and you put that now mentality into NFL fans for 60 years. Right. Well, on any given Sunday, anything can happen. Right. Well, then if you do potentially tweak a game here or there to give a team advantage over another team, and you have some crazy upset or some crazy Cinderella story that goes all the way to the Super Bowl, mm -hmm. you'd be like, well, that's just the way the NFL is. But the fact is, behind the scenes, there's more going on potentially to control those outcomes and get the results the league wants because the fans are conditioned and pre-programmed to believe in that. You know, prior to uh, speaking with you today, I spoke with maybe 10 people and uh, about whether they thought, um, you know, NFL or pro sports was in some way, shape, or form scripted, uh, etc. And, you know, 50% said yes, 50% said no. And what was interesting was the no people said that... Um, if they ever, if people ever got the idea that the games were, you know, scripted to the extent that outcomes were not determined by players on the field, then people would not watch. But I said to these people, yes, but 
look at the popularity. I don't know if you would think this is a fair comparison. Look at the popularity of uh, the WWE. Everybody knows the outcome of these matches, but their popularity is still exorbitant. What are your thoughts on that? I, I would agree with you. I mean, technically speaking, you know, from a business and legal perspective, there is no difference between the NFL and professional wrestling. Right. They're both sports entertainment. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. Like you say, here with professional wrestling, the fans don't know the outcome of the match. Right. You know, the wrestlers do. Right. And, you know, they play it up, and it's kind of like a giant soap opera, but the fans themselves don't know the outcomes, and you can literally bet on WWE matches in some markets. Right. Especially overseas. Right. So, I mean, for people to say, well, you know, if the NFL is scripted, you know, it, it would never happen because you couldn't bet on it. Well, you can. <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, I mean, you know, I think a lot of times, too, is it depends how, you know, uh, how much of a fan a fan is of a particular sport as to whether they would believe this is possible. Right. Because I think, you know, there's a real, like, psychological thing that goes on in fans' minds. Because you can hear it when you listen to the sports radio. They'll say, well, you know, we need to make this trade, or we need to right. make quarterback, or we need to do this. Well, you're not on the team, dude. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a totally thing. But I think that's the thing is, I do a lot of times I'll talk to people and be like, well, you know, I think the NBA is scripted or manipulated or fixed. And I don't, by the way, I should just mention quick, I don't think every game is fixed. Right, right, right. I think it's something that happened. Right. Right. Um, but again, going back to my example, you know, I can say, hey, I think the NBA was kind of rigged. I thought they gave a lot to Michael Jordan just because it was Michael Jordan. Right. And a lot of money to a lot of people. Right. People are like, yeah, I totally see that. And I think, you know, in the NFL, somebody might go, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm an NFL fan. There's no way that happens. Right. <laughs> the thing is, I think if you touch on that button, if you touch on their team, right. their sport, a lot of sports fans will have pushback because then it's affecting them personally. Right. You know, I'm talking about the NHL, and they could care less what happens in hockey. Then they'll jump on it and be like, yeah, that's totally rigged, that doesn't make sense. Right, right, right. Blah, blah, blah. When it's their sport or their team, right. then it matters. <laughs> and then it matters to them personally, and then you get a lot more pushback. But I think... If you take your fan hat off and look at the stuff and realize again, you know, the NFL, Major League Baseball, all of them are multi billion right. industries. Exactly. They're funded by other multi billion dollar industries in the media, in Nike, and Under Armour, and Gatorade, right. and corporations. It's a lot of money to a lot of people, and then we're just supposed to assume the games, which is the product, the most important thing of it all, is all just left up to chance. Right, exactly. I don't think any corporation that could control something right. that makes them that much money wouldn't control it because there's so much money on the Yeah, I mean, I tend to absolutely agree. And if I could just touch on that recent case, which you, I think, discussed, uh, I saw in one of your videos, uh, I think where you mentioned the Jets case um, with the stealing of the, of the thing. Okay. Right, and I mean, my father was uh, an attorney who actually, uh, you know, practiced before the... Uh, Supreme Court in several cases, not related to sports or anything. So I read that um, uh, the case and et cetera. And what I found interesting was that anybody who would read that or take the time to read it would realize that, you know what? This is probably all bullshit that I'm watching, for lack of a better word. But I think it's because people don't, as you just said, you know the old expression, every congressman is corrupt except mine. Um 
and I think if I don't understand why people sort of wouldn't pick up on that, that, you know, just read the case and you'll see that, listen, we're entertainment, they said, you know, we can do what we like. It's unbelievable to me, really, with, with, uh, well, and, and like you said, in that case, too, the, you know, the judges ruled that basically buying a ticket to the NFL game. All it grants you is the right to see a football game. Right. That doesn't mean certain players have to play, certain rules have to be followed. But does, as long as they go out and play football as opposed to basketball right. on the field, the NFL fulfilled its commitment to the ticket buyer, which means the person watching at home has even less rights. So there's no fraud involved in this. Right, right. Right, right, right. Because even, you know, I've talked to lawyers, I've talked to FBI agents, I've talked to mm -hmm. people involved with this, and I asked them, where's the law that says they can't do this? Mm. And nobody can produce one. A lot of people said, well, maybe it's fraud, and I said, well, like you said, look at the Spygate case. Right. Because that was the, like, Third Circuit Court of Appeals, and they basically said, mm -mm, this ain't fraud. Right, exactly. If it's not fraud, What's left? Right, exactly, exactly. You know, I wonder if it though has to do to a certain extent, at least if we look at it from a. I wanted to get your thoughts on this, uh, second to last thought, philosophically. Um, is it something where I remember that video that you posted where the man said, uh, I'm going to paraphrase him, they were on that panel where he said, you know, uh, we create um, a, uh, you know, a fantasy. These are characters, they're in a uniform, you know. And it's like um, costume, costume. That's right, costume. And I, right, costume. Right. And I thought, and I thought to myself, um, exactly. That's what you're, you know, watching. What are your thoughts on on that aspect of where people just willfully, maybe deep down, know that they're, uh, uh, if they think that deep down, these things are fake, but they continue patronizing it anyway. I don't think sports fans necessarily conflict that because it's such an escape. I see. And I, you don't blame sports fans for that. No, no. Everyone right. needs some sort of outlet. I mean, if it's reality television or comic books or whatever it is, right. sports is an escape. It's a three-hour escape for people to forget about the problems and just watch the game and right. think about the outside world as much as they can. And so I think that's why there's such an easy disconnect. Right, I see. Because it, it, I mean, I think sports fans do understand it's entertainment. But I don't think they understand what that's fully. I see. And I think that's, that's the issue. I, I don't think they completely understand where it is just entertainment like a circus. Right. Well, there's a lot of things that could potentially, you know, go on within the circus that makes it look like one thing, like a magic show. Makes it, you know, they make it, they made the elephant disappear. Well, they really didn't. You know? <laughs> what? what? They didn't? I've seen it happen. <laughs> Seven Super Bowls. <laughs> Right, exactly. Well, you know, last point I wanted to ask you. Are there any sports, now I know there's been soccer and things like that, but are there any sports where you as an expert would say there is less likelihood of, uh, or I should say more likelihood of being it being a pure competition? Or do you think that across the board, here I'm talking about cricket, uh, obviously soccer, every sport or game you could imagine, do you think there is this likelihood that a certain amount of um, uh, scripting goes into it to assure certain outcomes? I, you know, I hate to be really cynical, but my opinion is if money's involved, corruption follows. Right. And so I think every professional sport has some level of corruption. It's just a matter of how much. Right. I mean, if you look outside the United States, you know, 
worldwide, soccer is incredibly corrupt. There's game fixing everywhere for gambling purposes. Right, right. Cricket is incredibly corrupt. There's game fixing. Rugby. I mean, there's been proven game fixing elements all over the world, but amazingly not here in the United States. <laughs> which is not something that occurred to me to ask you, but I'm going to ask you now. Performance-enhancing drugs. Um, do you think the... You see, because people have, like... I've had these discussions just in a general sense, and I always, my position has always been, listen, if people, if athletes want to take these things uh, to, as you just point out, winning is everything, and, and they want to increase their chances of winning, I always say let them take them. Do you think the reason why there is this focus on keeping those types of substances out of sports is part and parcel of the idea that uh, it's like I remember one writer sports writer years ago saying well you see some of these NFL linemen today they're not they're it's not just Nebraska corn-fed beef they're eating these days <laughs> and and I said do you think there's the reason why they try to keep it in other words like so illegal if you will or at least per- perception the perception illegal is they want to maintain this fiction where you know these people are just raw athletes and they accomplish what they accomplish through hard work I, I would agree with you I mean I think part of it is PR for the league right to say that you know we can say that we have a clean right game which I think everybody with you know half a mind would realize it's not true especially in something like the NFL where those guys just get beat up and they're superhuman right 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 but I think you're right I think it, it helps maintain the illusion of these are pure you know, good, clean athletes, and they're, you know, doing their best and, you know, working out every day to mm-hmm. achieve these goals. And I also think part of it, is too, is the old, we got to protect the kids. Right. You know, if you have right. athletes out there saying, you know, I use this performance as drug and I use that. Right. And the 12-year-old saying, well, I can do the same thing. Right. <laughs> right. So you can hopefully maybe get some kids who don't get myself on this. Right. But I tend to agree with you. I'm like, look, if you want to be a professional athlete and do these drugs, you know, it may have long-term effects on you, so don't blame me for it. Right, exactly. 
business and trying to succeed, you know, I'd almost rather have it above the board so everybody knows what's going on. Right. As opposed to have it hidden under the table where you just kind of question and speculate and then you do wind up with bad occurrences with, you know, Right. Let me just ask you again. You keep mentioning things that make me want to continue. The, you mentioned, which is fine. It's perfectly fine. Um, you mentioned role models, and I remember reading. I guess it was a couple of years ago, maybe prior to the pandemic, and maybe you remember this, where some athlete, I think it was an NFL athlete, had gotten into some personal problems, and I think a reporter had said something to them along the lines of, you know, role model for kids, and I think their response was, I'm not a role model, and I shouldn't be a role model for your kids. I'm sure I'm paraphrasing what he said. What do you think of that whole notion that, um, you know, people, or I should say parents maybe more so than others, hold these people up as, as role models. And I think this man spoke a truth, this athlete, where he said, I'm not supposed to be, you know, your kid's role model, you know? Well, I, I agree with the athletes. I mean, they shouldn't. I mean, that's not they go out necessarily to be as a role model either. Right, that's right. That's a goal, I would think. Right. Um, I think, you know, the, part of the problem with sports, and I mean, it's a historical thing that literally goes back 100 plus years, mm-hmm. is that for a lot of... Uh, with poor people, for lack of a better term. Right. Sports is a way out. Right, right. You know, I mean, that's like boxing. I mean, they kind of track the history of boxing with a lot of ethnic groups and their way out of, like, the ghetto in a way right. to become a boxer because then they could make money. And that's the same today. A lot of way out of some of these poor areas of America is to become a football player, a basketball player, a baseball player. I mean, look how many kids come out of, like, the Dominican Republic right. because of baseball. Right. And that's their way out. So I think, you know, when you have a bunch of people who want to make money and want a way out of the situation they're living in, you know, athletes become role models almost accidentally because it's like, hey, that guy came from a neighborhood just like mine. Right. He made it. He made millions. Right. Maybe if I do the same thing, I can wind up in the same position. So I think, you know, it is kind of an actual thing. But at the same time, I agree with the athletes. They're not really role models. You know, I mean, some are. Some are good guys. Right, right, right. No, no, of course. It's not. It's not what they should be necessarily held up to standard. You know, I wondered. Uh, again, you, you you brought up this idea of uh, people escaping uh, their circumstances. Uh, let's say poor circumstances by athletics. And I wanted to get your thought on this because I've had discussions with people just in general conversation where I've always said. Uh, and I'm from New York City, born and raised in New York City, and I remember playing basketball on the playgrounds in Queens. And, and I always said to myself, whenever I see these athletes, um, you know, who have made it, first of all, the percentage of people who make it into any professional sports league is so infinitesimally uh, small. But I think that, aren't you, would you, what would you think? I usually say, I think they're selling here, or, you know, trying to promote, I should say, a false hope. Uh, to 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 people that I go back here and I've got my sneaker contract and um, you know Nike is sponsoring this basketball clinic. I've always thought, wouldn't it be better? And I'm not saying there aren't who do, but wouldn't it be better if Nike just said, hey, we're gonna you know provide college scholarships uh, to people instead of telling them, hey, you could play in the NBA one day. I've always thought that was a little bit cynical on the part of sports leagues. Your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I heard a stat which kind of blew my mind is technically it's easier to get elected to Congress than to play in the NBA. Oh, there's there's more congressmen at, at the federal level than there are NBA players. Unbelievable. Yeah. 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 So just 
put that in perspective. Right, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. The thing is, I think a lot of parents get wrapped up into the idea of, you know, some coach said my 12-year-old baseball player is a future major league baseball player when the chances of him really <laughs> not. Right. And so I think they get caught up into that world. And again, because you see how much money these people are making in the career paths of many of them, it becomes a fantasy, especially for certain parents who tried perhaps in their youth and failed right. in sports that they push their kids along. And yeah, and that, but it's a big money maker for everybody, you know. Right. Like you say for Nike and for even like the coaches at Little League and high school level and college level and all these other corporations involved in kids' sports, youth sports, it's a money maker. Right. Why, you know, puncture that reality and just instead foster the dream because. That's sort of money. Well, you know, so the parents understand that you know actually the odds against your kid are massive. Right, 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 right. It kind of reminds me of what uh, I'm sure you remember George Carlin, who said it's called the uh, American Dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. <laughs> All right. So on that note, uh, let's close. Um, and I want to say thank you very much uh, to you, Brian. And um, I appreciate you bringing up all those extra points. And um, I'm going to uh, get this up. And it was a fascinating discussion. And I hope the people um, listening take away the fact that there's always something more interesting about the things we see and think we know about. So with that, I want to thank you.